Welcome to Journeys of Teaching. I'm Aaron R. Gearhart. This week, we are exploring the journey of Dr. Elaine Westbrook, an assistant professor at Montana State University Billings, whose areas of specialization include STEM educational methods, chemistry, and astronomy. On the last episode, we discussed Elaine's industry-level work before she transitioned to teaching and how pivotal her father was in her studies, careers, and current work. Today, we'll conclude our time with Elaine by learning more about her current work as a teacher educator in Montana and how she has learned to be place conscious in the rural and indigenous communities in which she works. Montana being out here in the West, um, when you talk about diversity, not necessarily male to female, but a lot of uh, diversity uh, uh, in a very white dominated state, we have seven reservations representing 12 tribes. So a lot of my students come in, they don't, they don't, they've never even stepped on a reservation. They've lived in Montana their entire life. I'm like, I've been here eight years, guys. And, and so where, when I lived in the South, I felt like discrimination was very overt mm-hmm. and uh, very much in your face. And that really played a heavy hand when I was in junior high. Um, I didn't really pay attention. I mean, I grew up in Georgia, South Carolina. I've been Virginia, all over the place. And I didn't recognize it until it was I was in junior high riding the bus. And uh, this one set on the bus and these other guys were thrown out the N word. And I was like, what? Whoa, what is that? And uh, then it became very apparent that it was discrimination just by color. And, and I was like, oh, I'll move to Montana and that won't ever exist anymore. There will be no discrimination anymore because this is a white state and they won't, they won't, they'll have manners, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but now there's like this very subtle discrimination against Native Americans. Um, and it's, it's really weird. Um, I find it strange. Even last week, I went down to the prior reservation well, it wasn't prior. Crow Reservation. I went to prior, and I took my students, and I mean, like literally, a dozen of them. They'd never been on the reservation before. That that reservation is forty five minutes from here. Literally, just straight down the road. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to show them these are same kids as kids here. Kids are kids. Um, culture is different. How um, how education is looked at. It's kind of the same, but a little bit different. There's a lot of things you learn at home uh, through your own, uh, if you will, funds of knowledge that uh, white people don't understand. It's just not the way we think about things, not how we were schooled, right? So I spent a lot of time unpacking that for myself. <clears throat> I spent like a year <laughs> really as a hardcore scientist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not realizing how colonized my education was. Um, I started. And my at another school, I was like, oh, I want to help bring a curriculum I wrote about water. He's like, yeah, we have a curriculum about water. I'm like, oh, OK. And he's like, you know what what we believe about water? And I was like, no, no. He's like, water is alive. And I was like, uh, pardon me. <laughs> and it took me it, it really like. Bam, I pushed me back, way back. It took me a long time. I spent many, many hours contemplating this idea that water was alive. And um, I had a really hard time with that. 
Mm-hmm. Like you've got a colonized education. You think about it one way. That's the only way to think about it. You don't have any other application or any other way of coming at that. And I was like, okay, fair enough. So let me, let me unpack this. So I started doing some reading and literally I was reading braiding sweetgrass and she describes water. Um, it was on her farm, but how it hosted all the living things. And like those things wouldn't be alive without water. And so that helped me kind of like reframe and reshape my idea of, of what that, what that is, which is the current research path I'm on is called two-eyed seeing is the framework where one eye is looking at it from an indigenous point of view and the other eye is looking at it from a colonized point of view. And how do these intersect? How does this intersect? And so I spend some time in my, in my classroom kind of trying to at least expose them to ideas that are outside very colonized upbringings that we have, because we will have these kids in our classroom. And you can't just think that your way or the highway, there's a lot more, there could be like answers to problems that we can't figure out deep mm-hmm. in the universe that could be right there. And we just are so set in our little damn boxes that we can't get out. We talked about water rights a bit in your yeah. talk in Atlanta, but if you could just maybe back it up for me a little bit in terms of like, that was your dissertation research, correct? It's still my research, yeah. But it, I, and it's your ongoing research too. So, like, where did you first like sense the importance or the power of place-based education? Like, where did that start to click with you, and that become like a line of inquiry for you and your research agenda? So, when I moved to Montana, so there was a hard shift. I had spent 15 years in Florida, and then I moved to Montana. And the first thing my husband did was teach me how to hunt. So my um, wedding present was a bow. We did archery season. And then as soon as the archery season was o- over, like he just handed me a rifle and he's like, this will kill anything. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I was like, great. And went out, turns out I'm a natural. Like I, I probably from all the backpacking and, and zoology, right? I wanted to be a zoologist. Yes. I know how to track animals really well. I can kind of predict their movement. Um, So anyway, I was really good at it. But talking to his friends, it became apparent there were conversations we were not allowed to talk about. So in my master's degree, I had done some work in Yellowstone um, tracking the wolves. So I had, you know, a fair, you know, a decent amount of knowledge about the wolf population and um, but I was more interested in bears, but I knew about all the wolves. I knew the Molly pack was the only one that took down bison and that kind of stuff. But then there's some interesting conversations that would happen. So most of the hunters hated the wolves because the wolves, according to them, moved elk populations where it wasn't as conducive to just go out your front door and shoot something. And like, that's what they make it sound like. You just walked outside. They were everywhere. You just pew, And that was done. And now you got to like hunt. And I was like, well, I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. Um, right. And we don't sit in tree stands here. We walk. Um, there's no waiting for something to just pop by like you do. In the, I don't know. That's what I my impression of the South is. We just hang out. Well, my stand. brother, I'm from the Midwest and my brother does the whole deer stand thing in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. we don't do that. We we walk and we track um, and hope that something's there. Yeah. So um at first it was apparent with wolves and then 
And so then I would go down these rabbit holes because I was working that job in the, in the chemistry department. I didn't, I didn't have enough to do. I didn't have to start my dissertation for two years. So then I started looking stuff up. And I was like, why is this? So it started with wolves, right? And couldn't talk about that. And then I realized wolves tied to farmers. And then we started talking about water rights because if they weren't hunting, they were fishing, right? And I'm I'm okay, but my dad was a fisherman. I, ugh, gross. I don't want to do that ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fly fishing. So there's these rules about fly fishing. You have to be in the middle of the stream. You can't go up the banks. And and so then I was like, what's that all about? And it turns out everybody hated Ted Turner. And Ted Turner's like God in Atlanta. And so I was like, I don't understand why we don't like Ted Turner. And there was a story about fishing. And, and I looked up the original storyline so fish and wildlife wanted to poison the crick to uh get rid of an invasive species and that ran through his prep so it started on a mountaintop that ran through his bazillion acres down but it went through another river on the back end and um i was like that wasn't ted ted didn't come up with that idea like the, the fish and wildlife came up with that idea and Ted bought that ranch because somebody sold him the ranch. Like you can't be mad if someone sells the property to another human. They, you put it for sale, they get to buy it. So that kind of led into the ranching part, right? Like I started to like understand the landscape, understand land rights, understand those things. And then the wildfire started and I was unprepared for that. I taught AP environmental science. I should have like started to connect pieces, but I didn't connect till after I got here. So then I was like, we got all these crops growing everywhere. And then August, like the whole freaking state is on fire. Idaho was worse. Um, we can't see anything. Can't see the mountains because there's so much smoke. And I was like, why don't we, why aren't we doing controlled burns or this, that, and the other? And like we do, I saw them doing that in Florida. Very controlled burns, like taking out. The we do it burns. here in Georgia too. I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it here. Um, nobody wants to cut down a tree, like we got to protect everything. And so then if one thing catches on fire, just, just blows. Right. And the infrastructure of water isn't there. So this is the weirdest part about Montana. (laughs) It's a desert, but we get all our moisture comes in the winter. So we get, you know, feet 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 of snow we will get snow every month of the year it'll get snow in july um but it's not enough to uh by the time you get to end of summer to to protect it so then i started thinking about well how are we planting all these crops and what all what is this all about and when i got into my pilot work about figuring out what were stem issues like what were stem problems for montana what could i focus a curriculum on um it all came back to actually what it all came back to, and I'm not allowed to say that, say this here was climate change, but I can't wow. say that. We don't say yeah. climate change. Um, I'll just say water because that's politically okay. Um, like, what's if you say that, like in general conversation, there, what happens? That that's, I don't, I don't broach it. Um, it's that contentious. Well, I, I, yeah, it's probably worse now. Um, it depends on where I'm at. If I'm within academic circles, that's fine. Right. If I'm trying to do work in a rural location, I don't know if that's going to go over well. And I, I'm careful um, because there, you know, I don't talk about wolves 
in rural communities. That's not something I don't hunt wolves. Um, but I know they're attacking livestock, but the way I come at it, I, and I guess this is open, right? To you to do whatever. Um, when I'm in rural communities or in indigenous communities, I'm really, I'm gathering information. My, all my conversations are, tell me more about that. So I'm never trying to burn a bridge. I'm trying to be very open-minded to hear both sides of the story right. because I know there's two sides. Um, so recently I had um, some, I got to hunt on a private ranch um, in a very high, densely populated elk area. And so I went back to this gentleman's ranch uh, afterwards to, to pick up snakeskins for another project that you can imagine. You, you, you know who I am now. I just say y'all keep busy out in Montana. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of rattlesnakes up here and I needed some snakeskins. And so he started talking to me, but it was in like, it was almost in code. Like he wasn't blatant in the story. Like I couldn't figure out some of what he was telling me. He would say like the calves were dry or that the cows were dry. And I was like, what do you mean the cows are dry? That's so crazy to say it like that. Wow. Yeah, but it was elk cows. The elk cows were dry. And he would be talking about the end of the year. And then he would describe some things. And uh, it, it turns out like the wolves are coming in and killing the elk calves. So the herd is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And they're being driven into different areas. But he is literally right on the other side of Yellowstone. Like, absolutely. They're coming right over the, they don't know boundaries. They just walk right over. Yeah. Um, and if you got, you know, 5,000 head of elk just running around a valley, sure, it's, it's good pickings in the spring when you got all these pregnant cows um, to pick off the babies. And so it used to be, if I remember the story correctly, the elk would surround the calves in the center. Now they just everybody's fend for themselves. They don't they don't surround them. It's wow. they've learned a defense mechanism. So the even the behavior of the animals has changed, right? On on how they behave. And then there's kind of like unwritten code between uh fish and wildlife and maybe these ranchers on like leases for where they run cows, because there's just stuff that's not said. And then it turns out like, oh, there's grizzlies there. They're eating your cows. And this is, I mean, this starts again, the Yellowstone stuff, really. Uh, Yellowstone, the show. If you, mm -hmm. I started piecing pieces together. I was like, oh, if I tell you there's grizzlies there, you're going to cut me off from my grazing lease because every cow that dies, you got to pay me $1,500. Well, it's cheaper to just say you're not grazing there anymore. It's not safe. So it's just weird just little little bits of information filter through and I finally can piece the stories together but it's taken me a long time to like you got to build the relationships and you got to talk to people and then you've got to like put it's almost decoding what you're doing is kind of decoding what they're actually saying and yeah but there's no I don't have an IRB so I can't publish any of it but <laughs> <laughs> but what I can tell you is a lot of what Yellowstone does in the um in the show, I feel is it's correct. It's not a hundred percent correct. Like all the locations are wrong and we don't have million dollar ranchers running around like that with helicopters, but some of the underlying stories are true. I mean, mm. it is true. You, you have to be able to maneuver 
legal and um, legitimate wildlife issues, if you will, Native American issues. Um, I mean, missing and murdered indigenous women is definitely a thing. Yeah. I don't know where those women are going at all. Uh, and it's kind of scary, super scary. Uh, there's, there's just bizarre things that happen here that it's very unlike the rest of the United States. So I'm, I'm constantly learning. Yeah. And decoding and putting pieces together and trying to make it all fit. Like the flood last year with the Yellowstone river, like my stepson came in he goes, well, people's lost their you know roads to their ranches and and things like you know their you know their houses are gone we should do something about the river i'm like that is a natural thing you are not going to control a river like that's you if you choose to put your house next to it well that's on you like mm-hmm. <laughs> one day it's going to flood and and you're you're going to have to reap the consequences so it's been interesting what we try to control and what we should let just be and we should be careful about it and there's definitely some i would say i'm i'm very conscientious about colonized ways of thinking versus native american ways of thinking and almost political viewpoints on how those two so i think if you're a newbie to a community like me, I would say I'm the newbie. I'm always the outsider. I've been the outsider my entire life. I've never been from any place. So that's why I use Greenmaw's uh, place. He he's calls it um, place-based transients because you're always moving and learning from a new place. Yeah. Um, but this is where I feel like place conscious comes into effect. So my work is around place conscious because you have to be conscious of what's happening in those communities. Mm -hmm. It's not just that you're in one place, but how does it affect the thing next door to it? Right. Um, And, you know, I think for a teacher, like from a teacher standpoint, I'm interested in helping um, communities understand their STEM and their community. They may not view it as STEM or a rancher is an engineer. Oh, yeah. Every day, every day. But they don't think they don't think, oh, I'm an engineer. Nobody thinks that. Um, well, maybe they do now. But I, I think it's really important for kids to make those connections, too. Like when I do the water curriculum. And this is interesting because I just went to my very first school yesterday. And okay. I found the kids. They were they came in. I was working in the library and like four or five kids came in and I was like, what grade are you? And they're like fifth, sixth. And I'm like, oh. I had you two years ago. You remember making water pumps? They're like, oh yeah. And I was like, do you, do you, and I tried to like do an impromptu, like, what do you remember kind of thing? But here's the thing. They said they didn't remember anything. They told me more stories about PVC pipes, water, <laughs> water pumps blowing up, where the pumps were, like they could name it all. I have a pump inside my well and a pump outside my house and I have PVC pipe, but it burst because we got, we let it freeze. We didn't run the water and just, I was like, oh, but you guys don't know anything. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, Interesting. Right. Um, And right there, just describing that they're talking about science. They're talking about engineering clearly. Yeah. Yeah. But they, we didn't label it like that. Right. We just, we're just talking about it. So it's sometimes I think it's the label that makes it scary 
And then if you kind of take it apart and you you look at it from just the aspect of what is it doing and you can if you can get the curiosity sparked then maybe they'll go a little bit deeper into it i mean now i can't drive past a field and like oh there's an irrigation pivot oh there's a water line oh there's a, yeah. a ditch that's dug 150 years ago to run water you know across maybe 150 miles run it from one town to the other. Um, There's tons of things that I never paid attention to before that I pay attention to now. And I'm hoping that's what happens for them. I'm hoping they're thinking like, oh, I had to fix the gate because, you know, the clip wasn't working right. So I I tightened, you know, a, a prong or something and made it work. Like, I just want to put that spark in their head that, Sometimes these projects get bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes you, th- those kids think outside the box. Well, and you're not just like you're teaching them the the concepts and the skills and stuff, but maybe we're not calling it climate change today, but they're going to be smart enough across disciplines to figure it out and point it right. out in ways that are going to hopefully be a little more nuanced and less, um, politically charged i don't know if that's yeah. the right term but maybe and that's it is. exactly that's exactly how the curriculum is written it's written I love that to to just like all right i'm gonna lay this out for you do you talk you tell adults whatever you want you tell them you you say and that and them. that's such a more empowered way to think about it than telling them what to think or yeah uh, you know, a lot of times like today if politicians don't like what we're talking about it's called grooming or indoctrinating and it's it's none of that it's just a it's empowering them and they can think for themselves i think they're scared of having the kids think for themselves i gotta tell apparently, you apparently that's what everybody <laughs> thinks so we, if we're making a bunch of critical thinkers around here and that's going to be scary and i'm like well you know we haven't been able to fix the problems we're going to have them a shot. critical thinkers to, to do it the two words that i kept thinking about during these excerpts from the conversation i had with elaine in may were listening and discussion When we think about being place conscious, we must move with an ethos of seeking to understand rather than imposing or preaching. This involves close listening and reflection, which resonated so clearly from Elaine's narrative. Likewise, being place conscious involves actual discussion and exchange of ideas and questions without fear of judgment or persecution. When we are place conscious, we are more mindful of the reasons we teach and learn, and we foster tomorrow's innovators and custodians of what we hope will be a more just and thoughtful world in the future. I want to thank Elaine for sharing her story on this podcast. You can connect with Elaine on LinkedIn. Next week, we will explore the journey of Dr. Reba Wisner, an assistant professor of music and musicology at Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia. My contact information is in the episode description. This is Journeys of Teaching. I'm Aaron R. Gearhart, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.